Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We start the year with a happy story. Despite attacks on pensions, Medicare, penalty rates and fair wages and conditions, the hallmark of our federal government, industrial relations, a phoenix arises from the ashes. The work of disabled workers, their lawyers from the AED Legal Centre and pro bono work from barristers delivered back pay for up to 10,000 workers in Australian disability enterprises before Christmas in a groundbreaking wages justice case. We have words from Kirsty Wilson, AED Principal Legal Practitioner and hero, I might add, about this society-changing outcome. After the good, we bring the bad. As our feckless federal government tries to plaster over holes in the walls of their government by blaming the most vulnerable in society, then cutting pensions and Medicare in its latest mini-budget, the use of data matching and modelling techniques have been applied to Social Security recipients' payments with extraordinary results. CEO of ACOS, Cassandra Goldie, comes out fighting at the government's latest stunt. But first, some union news. Two more companies accused of wage theft turned up this Christmas. The popular Paul Sadler Swimland has been caught underpaying hundreds of young instructors over six years. As well as underpaying staff, the Enterprise Agreement required them to renew their contracts every 10 to 12 weeks and included a flexibility agreement which reduced the minimum shift rate to one and a half hours from three hours. The Australian Workers' Union has filed an application for fair work to determine whether the individual flexibility arrangements employees have been asked to sign complied with the Fair Work Act. If the rules allowed employers to get away with ripping off workers by using legal loopholes, then the rules need to change, said the union. Baker's Delight will be taken to the Fair Work Commission on February the 20th, where it will be argued the work choices agreement that the company was employing young workers on, paying as little as $8 per hour on weekends, was a sham. In one of its first stouches, the new retail and fast food workers union is lending a helping hand. January the 1st, 2017, saw the beginning of the changes to the Australian aged pension. In a move that could be seen to be tied to the federal government's desire to bring more homes onto the market, the single asset free threshold for a homeowner will start at $250,000 and they'll lose their pension entirely at $542,500. That's for a single person uh, if they own a home. Now, if you're a couple and you own a home, it starts at $375,000 and ends at 816000 combined. 
Now, what they mean is that the pension starts to be reduced at uh, the lower figure by $3 per $1,000. In the past, it started to be cut by $1.50 at the lower asset threshold. Now, if you're a single person without a home, you start to lose your pension when your assets are between $450,000 and you lose the pension completely by $742,500. Now, if you're a couple, their pension, if they don't own a home, is cut at $1,016,000. Now, that's if you don't have a home. Now, a working class person or people, couple, commonly have one asset of value, their home, and they don't generally have shares. Without the pension, they'll have to sell their asset. Let's go back again and say the homeowner will start losing their pension at uh, $250,000 and they'll lose their pension completely by $542,500. Now, the cost of housing has gone up. So a medium Melbourne house price at the moment is 770000 And Footscray, a quintessential working class suburb in Melbourne, and this is common across Australia's capital cities, the lower price house in that area, the lower what they call quartile house prices, are at 780000 and the medium is at 855000 So one assumes that will mean a windfall for privately owned nursing homes. And I repeat, a working class person's commonly owned asset is their house. And uh, at those rates, one assumes they won't be able to receive a pension until they sell their house. So policy is social engineering for financial outcomes rather than social security it would appear. The Safe Schools Program, a program developed to provide curriculum and support to same-sex attracted and gender unaligned students in our schools, has been taken out of the hands of the program creator, Rose Ward, and her employer, La Trobe University. The Victorian Education Department will roll the program out in-house. The program became a political football after Turnbull's federal government intervened under pressure from right-wing and Christian fundamentalist lobbyists within the Liberal Party. Four full-time jobs have been lost and the program, which has been developed over a four-year period and adopted by 60% of Victorian schools as a response to fatal outcomes for their LGBTIQ students, have been overshadowed by political expediency. We've been working with 280 schools with families that rely on and value the trust we have with them and we don't think that can be replicated, said Ros Ward. The Victorian government will continue to develop the program. However, the victory of right-wing ideology over need is a worrying sign. The LBTIQ community has let their financial clout speak over the attack on the Safe Schools program. The Midsummer Festival, the premier queer festival in Victoria, has withdrawn from a sponsorship deal with News Corp after a backlash from the LGBTIQ community 
over the homophobic reporting in the Murdoch press around the Safe Schools program, in particular a Bill Leake cartoon that depicted gays as Nazis in the Herald Sun. Finally, Uber, the great and flexible Uber that was supposed to show up all the flaws in the overcomplicated and expensive taxi system. Uber's get-with-it-or-die attitude has met some challenges this Christmas. Apparently, seasonal surges in prices, a new app that makes it hard to pinpoint the client's whereabouts, roundabout routes leading to high fares, and lack of accountability processes is tarnishing the glow of the modern means of getting around. Makes you see why the taxi business was so regulated. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. You're on Stick Together with Annie McLaughlin, produced at 3CR Melbourne and distributed at the Community Radio Network. In a case run for Tyson Duval Comrie against discriminatory pay scales at Australian Disability Enterprises, a success was had before Christmas. This was just part of a long journey for wages justice for people who work in what were commonly called sheltered workshops. Kirsty Wilson from AED Legal Service, the legal service that defends the rights of people with disabilities in issues of employment and education, has been there every step of the way. Uh, what we've been working since 2002 is in relation to wages for people working in Australian Disability Enterprises or what was known as sheltered workshops where they had been paid a dollar a day, five cents an hour, that sort of thing. What we said is that, you know, they should have the same rights to to wages, to equitable wages as anybody else in the workforce and that if every other employee is, you know, there's a minimum wage that these workers are also entitled to have their wages assessed at the minimum at the minimum wage. So basically, you know, you start off, say, for example, $10 an hour. If that person is not 100% productive or they might be 80% productive, they might get 80% of the wage, so $8 an hour. But you've got to have that starting point and these workers didn't have that. So we've been fighting to get that right and that it be a, a wage assessment tool that is um, that uses productivity only, not competencies which aren't relevant to these workers. Can you explain that to me? All right. What that means is like the tool that we actually took all, and it went all the way through to the High Court where it was confirmed that, the, that it was actually discriminatory was divided into two parts. So there was the productivity element and there was a competency element and things like um, what meetings does your boss go to or what do you do if the, if the uh, machinery is faulty well, these aren't relevant questions. I mean, I don't get asked what, well, most of us don't get asked what meetings do, does our boss go to and if we don't know the answer, we lose a percentage of, their, of our wage. And that's what happened with these, with this particular tool is that so somebody, some employees might end up with zero for the competency and say they were 50% productive, they would... It would then be divided into half because they were zero for the um, competencies. 
So they'd end up with 25% of the wage. And we just said that's not, you know, that's discriminatory. So when you're talking about a tool, is this a computerised tool? No, it's not. It's a, a design that how how can you assess wages to because they are considered that they shouldn't be paid the minimum wage. So what we say is the supported wage. And what happens with the supported wage, which is used in open employment, is that you have a comparator. And the comparator is the average worker. So, for example, you work at Coles, you're packing, or, um, packing the shelves, You've got the average worker, um, there's a, a benchmark that's worked out. So this is what effectively the average worker would do in half an hour. So the worker with the disability who isn't 100% productive will be measured or timed in accordance with that with that benchmark. And if they come up at 90% of what that um, what that benchmark is, then they will be paid 90% of the wage. But it is only on their productivity. It's only measured on how many um, stockings that they, you know, put the lollies in for Christmas, for example, or how how long it takes them to to um, do facing up at the supermarket in a certain area, and how much you know how much time it would take some of the average worker. So it's not the fastest worker, it's not the slowest worker. So that's. That's a tool to assess how how you can pay people. Well, it's a very interesting approach, isn't it, uh, to uh, see a person in this light? But of course, you're going to the court, so you have to work it out in a very uh, uh, rigid, rational sort of a way. Uh, and you're talking about um, a sheltered workshops. I suppose that's what. I don't know if that's well, the term that's still employment. used. Supported yeah, employment. Supported employment. It's not, but a lot of people know them by that by that name rather than um, they were when the tool was designed. It was business, they were business services. Now they're Australian Disability Enterprises or ADEs. So they, you know, they sort of changed the name, but they they're supported employment. So they're effectively set up. Um, with, they have funding from the government to provide that support but the wages are paid out of the contracts. So if they are contracted to do the, the mowing or car wash, for example, or washing windows, that's the job that they do. And, and they, you know, the business has to, has to make the, you know, put the tenders out for whatever business they do. It could be sugar sticks in boxes, muesli bars. You know, there's a whole range of things that are done. And the majority of, of the work is production-like work. Okay, and so are we talking about people with intellectual disabilities or phys- physical disabilities? Look, about 85% approximately, and that number is, you know, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but approximately 85% of the workers, and there's around 20,500 or 21,000 of um, employees, supported employees around Australia. So probably around 85% of the workers have an intellectual disability. With this work that you've been doing over such a long time, uh, are you struggling with uh, general uh, societal perceptions? Is that an issue? Yes, yes, it is an issue. People think that we're trying to close ADEs down, that we don't, um, that we're not looking at the bigger picture, but... I would disagree. I think that, to me, it is really important that every 
employee or every person in Australia, adult person, has a right to um, to earn an equitable wage, has a right to be able to go to work. And, you know, the argument that it's uh, it's it's more than work, it's social, it's their social life, they've got their friends there, they're safe. I agree that, that that is part of it, but we all have friends at work. We all have, it is, you know, everyone who goes to work, it is very much part of our, of our life. And why should a person with disability not have that same right to, to do that? But we we do yes as I said we do have a lot of people think that we we're um, trying to force ADEs to close down that that's just not true at all I know that there's arguments that if they have to pay productivity wages they won't the they won't be able to be viable and to me it's two separate arguments you need to have an equitable tool you need to be able to assess wages with a tool that is going to be non-discriminatory. The viability of the ADE is another matter. That's the business. The business itself needs to be viable. Why should a worker miss out on being paid because the argument is that, that they're, not, um, they're not going to be viable? And, and the other thing is we don't know. We won't know until a new tool is, um, is set up and, and is rolled out whether an ADE or, you know, particular business is going to be viable. We haven't seen any any figures in regards to that or ev- any evidence to suggest it. We know that there's a number of ADEs who use the supported wage, which is the tool, as I said before, we, that we believe should be used. And, you know, so they're already using it. But these tools that, you know, the business services wage assessment tools or BSWAT and... A number of other tools. There's 27 other tools in the um, in the award, which have all got competencies, and we're saying that they are all discriminatory and that they should be removed. Two more of these tools are in the federal court at the moment. That's Green Acres and and Skills Master, and our argument is the same that they are discriminatory and they should be removed. I know if, if it was my child, I would be fighting tooth and nail for her rights to be recognised. I know that every one of my clients who come to me and say, I want to be paid a decent wage, I want to be able to go to work, yes, but I want to be able to have the, have the things that I can't afford because being on the DSP does not pay for me to have a stake occasionally or to go on a holiday or to go um, down to Tasmania because my football team is Hawthorne and I want to be able to go and support them. Like so many people who don't have a disability, who work in open employment, they have those, are able to go and do that. And and my clients want the same rights. Many will be aware by now that people who have received Centrelink payments, past or present, are in the middle of a war of attrition with the computer modelling and data matching systems being used by the compliance section of Centrelink. The compliance section is so hot at the moment that as one recipient of a letter of demand said, you get through straight away instead of the usual 40 minutes and some wait if you ring Centrelink. Letters have been going out accusing Centrelink recipients that they owe the system in some cases up to $25,000. 
Ministers in the Liberal federal government have been interviewed saying it's a police matter. I and my fellow broadcaster Kim Doyle caught up with Cassandra Goldie from ACOS, Australian Council of Social Services, who had this to say. Anybody who's listening will know that at the moment it is extremely difficult to speak to anybody at Centrelink. Um, we, the stories vary, but the data shows that we've got um, you know, millions in calls each year that are not being... Uh, where people can't even get through. And then when you do get into the system, you still can wait for up to an hour or more before you actually speak to somebody. So you're ongoing. If you're receiving a Centrelink payment, you do have an ongoing obligation to update your information. And this is really hard for people because often people's um, income levels do vary quite a lot. You've got to predict your future income. That's how Centrelink assesses your eligibility. And, of course, your future income can change very unpredictably. Um, We know that many people are now relying on multiple jobs, um, you know, small uh, amounts of money that are received rather than this sort of one predictable pay, you know, um, pay level. So it has been very difficult for people to um, make sure that their information is regularly accurate. And on the other hand, of course, Centrelink makes mistakes. The government is now using a very aggressive and we believe um, completely inappropriate debt collection approach. And we're very alarmed by it, as are, the, um, we believe, hundreds of thousands of people who are receiving these kinds of debt notices. No, it's it's quite clear that what they're doing is applying the same systems that are being used in uh, co- corporations patent pattern their patents. It's all about patents uh, when they're checking to see if there's discrepancies. But like you say, people's lives aren't as uh, regular as that, are they? Well, that's right. And of course, this isn't um, about. Um, uh, the high, this is about the high risk of a very automated, aggressive, rigid debt collection process. I mean, from the, the reports we've had in the media, we've got debt notices worth $650 million that have been issued um, out into the public in just the last four months. Um, some of these relate to um, alleged overpayments that date back years to... Mm. For example, 2010. In many cases, people um, are not receiving Centrelink payments anymore. They didn't even know that there was a um, alleged debt owed, um, and they've only found that because they've happened to log on to the um, uh, their own online um, my.gov portal and found that there's a debt sitting there um, against them um, with very limited time to pay unless they negotiate a repayment schedule. So uh, we're we're very alarmed ourselves about the uh, impact that this is having on people. We're not talking about large corporations receiving debt notices here. We're talking about individuals and families who will often be in very um, uh, marginal financial circumstances. You know, many people are struggling to cover their living costs week to week. And when you get a notice that says that you have to pay a debt, which you... Uh, it's very difficult for you to prove that you don't pay it or that it's, you know, not the correct amount and then to be told that you've got to pay that within 28 days um, or, you know, further penalties and potentially as the 
responsible minister um, said in the media, if you don't pay, you, you will go to jail. We will track you down and you will go to jail. This is completely inappropriate from the um, government agency that's responsible ultimately for social security in Australia. This so is they, about they're criminalising. Yeah, no, but they're criminalising the, insta- the Australian population. Absolutely. Um, we are not a police state, as I have said throughout the week, um, and we need a very humane uh, process in place for when there are mistakes um, at the Centrelink end or where somebody has um, earned more in the future than they had predicted they would. We need a, an appropriate process which is humane and understands the ordinary circumstances of individuals and households um, when they are trying to navigate what is a complex system um, in terms of your eligibility for Centrelink payments. I'm, I wanted to ask you about there seems to be a common theme that people who were empl- employed on contracts or part-time work for a period of time. Centrelink, with this what seems to be quite a crude data-matching scheme, seems to assume that you worked and were paid over the whole of the financial year. And <clears throat> based on this, there's been, it sounds like, a lot of false debt. False assumptions. False debts um, sent out. Have you heard about this? Uh, Look, absolutely, we've heard that people are disputing that they owe the debts that are being issued against them. Um, The uh, welfare rights services around the country are absolutely under the hammer trying to provide support to people in these circumstances. Um, There are welfare rights services um, in um, most of the capital cities, but, of course, they themselves have been subject to funding cuts and are under intense pressure when it comes to responding to people often who are very distressed and in desperate circumstances. I mean, these debt notices um, have been escalated. We're talking 20,000 being issued a week um, in an automated system. Um, And um, in many cases, we're talking significant amounts of money. We're hearing of figures of, you know, $11,000, where people are really struggling to understand how that could possibly have occurred. Um, and the tone of the correspondence, the tone of the responsible minister is that this is a policing matter. It is not a policing matter. This is about um, an appropriate assessment um, in, which should ideally be happening in a much more timely way. This is um, a government who announced that they were wanting to make significant budget savings. This is about budget measures. That's it for Stick Together Today. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Kirsty Wilson and Cassandra Goldie for talking to us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 8377. And thank you to your local station for passing on the news. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time.